0: Grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. We are covering verses 25 to 29 this morning. We're actually finishing Romans chapter 2. We're making progress. Praise the Lord. But I want you to back up to verse 17 because we're going to get the flow of what Paul's saying here by going over our verses from last Sunday as well. Let's start by remembering that the Apostle Paul spent a considerable amount of time in chapter 1 talking about the idolatry and the immorality of the Gentile world, clearly demonstrating their need for the gospel if they were ever going to be forgiven and saved, right? That was chapter 1. And no doubt the Jews in the audience who were receiving this letter, uh, and especially the religious moralists of the day, As chapter 1 was being read, they would have been nodding their heads in agreement. Yep, those Gentiles, those pagans need to turn from their idols. They need to turn from their unbelief. But then in chapter 2, those same people would have grown increasingly uncomfortable with the shift that Paul is making. Because now he's turning his attention not to the pagan Gentiles, but to who? But to the Jews. And this would have caused great discomfort among his audience. We're going to see some of that in our text for This morning. Remember, the Jews were the self described bastions of of morality and religion in that day. And so we saw last Sunday how, beginning in verse 17, what Paul did was he loaded up both theological barrels and he blasted the Jews for their blatant hypocrisy. What was he trying to do? He was trying to get them to see that they are no better off than the Gentiles. Everybody, Jew and Gentile, stands before a holy God condemned. All of mankind is on an equal footing when it comes to sin and judgment. And so it's not just the Gentiles who need to hear the gospel, but the Jews are equally in need. So let's look at verse 17 through 24 real quick. We'll recap that and we'll move on to our our verses for today. Verse 17, hear the word of the Lord. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, deep breath, right? If all of that is true, he says in verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you Commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So last Sunday, we imagined a sort of a Jewish antagonist. If someone, if a Jew were to hear this part of the letter read and were to confront Paul and challenge him, uh, and, and a lot of scholars, by the way, have looked at this and, and thought that perhaps Paul is addressing a composite of all the Jews that he had met in his life in his missionary travels as he shared the gospel. Sort of a, a composite of the type of people he had been meeting. And so it's, it's kind of fun to create this antagonist to say, well, what would, they, what would this person actually say back to Paul? So maybe this antagonist at this point would say, Paul, you don't understand. We've been chosen by God. We don't need your gospel. We've been chosen by God. And Paul would say, well, that may be true. And you do have many advantages over the Gentiles, including being children of Abraham. But being an ethnic Jew is not enough. Have you heard of Esau? Have you heard of Esau? Because he was a child of Abraham and a child of Isaac, and yet he's rejected by God, and yet he is cursed by God. So how would you explain Esau if you're counting on your election? And the Antichrist might say, okay, well, we'll throw that one out. What about the law? We have the law, so why would we need your gospel if we have the law? Paul would say, well, that also is true. You have been blessed to have received the law through Moses. But let me challenge you with this question. Is having the law enough? Is possession of the law enough, or do you need to do it? Do you need to do all of it? And if you thought about how comprehensive all is, every thought, every attitude, Every motivation. And maybe this antagonist, who probably would be getting more perturbed at this point, might say, well, we Jews have the unique privilege of worshiping and boasting in Yahweh. And Paul might respond, that's true. But do you boast in the idea of God, or do you really know Him? See, it's wonderful to think on God, and it's wonderful to go through religious rituals that point us to God. But if you don't have a saving relationship of trust and obedience, what will any of that profit you on the Day of Judgment? Well, finally, this antagonist, who's now probably quite shaken, would have said, but we Jews alone know God's will. And Paul replies, I know that you think you're qualified as a guide and a teacher and a corrector and a light to the lost, but look at the record. You have been such a bad witness that the name of Yahweh is blasphemed across the world before the Gentiles. And that's, a, that's just sort of a, a summary of, of what what Paul is headed here in 17 to 24 it's because of your hypocrisy he says how you lift up God's law but you do not do it it's a brutally honest assessment isn't it we talked about it last Sunday it is brutally honest and as i said last week Paul's point is not not to just point out the jews and say you are uniquely defective as a people they weren't all he's trying to do is to get them to see that they are no better off than the gentile whom they look down their nose at everybody is on an equal footing All of us, all of us are hypocrites to some extent, both Jew and Gentile. All of us fall short before a holy God. All of us are in need of a Savior, and that's the logic. That's where Paul is headed in the letter of Romans. But first, we're going to look at the beginning of verse 25. There is one more sacred cow that Paul has to deal with. One more thing that a first century Jew might claim would commend him before God, and that's circumcision. If you read the rabbinical commentaries of this day, they repeatedly make statements to this effect. No circumcised person will go down to Gehenna. This is what the rabbis in Paul's day believed. That nobody circumcised would go to hell. That simply by virtue of this this symbol of the covenant, that they would avoid judgment. That was the common misunderstanding of the Second Temple period among the Jews. And so God's chosen people the Jews, this people of the book, had fallen into this very ugly habit of reading the law and learning about the law, and unfortunately summing it up in a whole bunch of rituals and regulations, but missing the entire heart of the matter. But listen to how Paul corrects them now, beginning in verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Now That's a lot. We're going to get into these verses, but I know it's it's sort of overwhelming, but we'll, we'll dig through these. Verse 28, "...for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh." But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the "what? Of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So as we as we wrap up chapter two here, let me share with you what I think the big idea is in this particular section of Scripture. Now in fact, I'm going to put it on the screen so that, so that we know. It's really the foundation for self-deception and false religion. the foundation for self-deception. And false religion. The belief that external symbols and rituals can compensate for the absence of internal heart obedience. That is the foundation for a person being self-deceived, self-deluded into thinking they're okay when they're not, and being a part of false religion. Believing that they can go through a whole bunch of external things, have symbols on the outside, wear the right clothes, say the right things, go through the right ceremony, and that can somehow make up for the fact that there is no inward faith. And unfortunately, many of our Roman Catholic friends come to mind, do they not? When we think about that. May we have ears to hear how this same principle might apply to us in the church today. So, one last time, let me go back to this idea of a fictional Jewish antagonist. He might say, listen, Paul, we don't need your gospel. We have circumcision. We have the covenant promises given to Abraham that was sealed by this very important sign we call circumcision. And I think Paul would respond this way. He said, look, those covenant symbols, things like circumcision, they're good, but they're only meaningful if they're matched by an interior inward reality. Symbols on the outside are only of value if they're matched by covenant realities on the inside. In other words, you can claim that outward symbol of faith all day long, but you show no tangible signs of a matching faith in your heart. The truth of your life does not reflect heart obedience to God. When I look at your life, I don't see love for God. I don't see love for neighbor. Again, this is hypocrisy. Paul is talking to folks who are comfortable and secure in this religious self-delusion that just by being a child of Abraham, that they will avoid judgment. And he wants to shake them out of it. And when we think about doing evangelism, we think about different categories of, of people that we share our faith with in this world. The people that Paul is talking to here, in my opinion, are the toughest to reach. Think about this for a second. Let's say you, you, you go off during uh, this coming week, you go off to your favorite coffee, coffee house. You, you buy your latte, right? You go sit down, you open up your Bible, and you're just quietly reading, and suddenly you get this weird sense, this has happened to me actually, where the person near you is, is staring at you. And you look over, and this person catches your eye, and, and he or she says, why are you reading that book? Why are you reading the Bible? Now at that moment, you ask yourself, well, okay, who is this person what do I know about this person? What kind of person do you hope they are? Let me give you a couple of options. Number one, it might be a Christian who is assured of salvation, and they're just, they just want to know you because, hey, there's another person reading the Bible, and that'd be great. You could meet a brother or sister in Christ. You could mutually encourage each other. That'd be great, right? It also might be a Christian who is struggling with security, struggling to believe that they're actually saved. That would be better, wouldn't it? Because now I can talk to a brother or sister in Christ and, and I could edify that person and show them in scripture why God says that if you're saved, that he holds you and you, you're not going to escape his hand and that you can trust in his promises. So that'd be a little bit better. The third possibility is you have a non-believer who isn't really sure about the future. And that's the best, right? This is the best case scenario. This person asks you why you're reading that book. They don't know God, and they're a little bit worried about their future. So you have a chance now to really share why you believe that Jesus is the answer to eternal life. That's the best case scenario. But the fourth one is what Paul's talking to. These are the toughest nuts to crack. Non-believers who still feel comfortable. They still they feel absolutely fine about their eternal future. Do you know people like this? They're the hardest ones to reach, in my opinion. And this is the type of person that Paul is assessing and speaking to in our passage. These are people who have built what they believe is a solid platform of assurance. I have circumcision. I'm fine. I have all of these things. I'm absolutely fine. And so Paul sees it as his job in the letter of Romans, particularly in chapter 2, to knock out every supporting pillar of this platform that they have built for themselves that gives them a false sense of assurance. Does that make sense? So they're building, we all do this, right, in life, to try to give ourselves some measure of peace. We build a platform and say, this is what assures me that I'm, I'm right with God and I'm headed to heaven. But some people build those platforms on false things, do they not? And that's what's happening with his audience. So they've built all these pillars. Well, I'm an ethnic Jew. Well, I possess the law. Well, I, I uniquely boast in God. I know his will. And lastly, I have circumcision. Those are the pillars that Paul wants to knock out. Those things are all true and good, and they represent advantages for the Jew, but none of those things will save anybody on the day of judgment. Do we agree? Good. So why is Paul being so harsh here? Why is he being so harsh? In our culture today, we'd probably say this is harassment, right? Paul the bully, right? Paul is spiritually bullying people by using this type of sharp language, and it is sharp language. But it's not because he, because he hates them. The exact opposite is true, right? He loves his own people and wants to see them saved. But in order to get them saved, what he wants to do is he knock out those pillars that they're trusting in, including circumcision. See, we have to be willing to speak hard truths today. Our culture is getting more and more hardened. Did you know that? More and more seared in their consciences as our culture circles the drain. We, more and more, we have to be bold in our evangelism in those coffee houses, in the workplace, wherever you're sharing your faith, to speak hard truths to people about their spiritual condition. And I know this is a live and let live world now. Don't, you know, don't bother me, I won't bother you. But we don't have that luxury as Christians. We've got to be more bold. We simply cannot let people feel secure in their eternal future when they ought not be secure in it. Did you hear me with that? We cannot let our friends and family, people we care about, let alone that stranger in the coffee house, feel secure in their false pillars when they ought not to be secure about it. We need to tell them why they shouldn't feel secure. We have to speak the truth. Always out of love, always out of compassion, right? Because motivation means everything. If you come off arrogant or if you're just trying to put a notch in your belt or you're trying to win a debate, they're likely to turn away. But in love, we have to knock out all of those pillars that support their platform of self-deception. Well, I'm a good person, Jeff. Right? How many times have you heard that? I'm a good person. I'm better than most. I do charity work. I go to church occasionally. I grew up in the church. My dad actually was in the ministry. I mean, I've heard a million of those types of things. And these folks are trusting in that. They're building a platform to make themselves feel better, to give themselves some measure of peace so that they can get through their lives. And so the answer is, well, that's nice. I'm glad your dad was in the ministry. I'm glad you go to church occasionally. But you still need the grace of God. You still need God's grace. And let me tell you why those other things won't get you to heaven and why Jesus is the only answer. we got to have those conversations, folks, as Paul is doing with his Jewish friends here. Now, before we dive any, any deeper into this, there, there's an elephant in the room, and we need to talk about it. Um, and, I, and I put the picture up there just to add to the flavor. Um, circumcision. Circumcision. <laughs> all right, so let's admit a couple of obvious things here. First of all, it seems pretty strange to the modern ear, does it not, when we talk about circumcision? Circumcision. I'm not the only one. Please tell me. Okay. And secondly, it's a fairly awkward topic for church, um, but we're going to do it anyway because we have to because it's in the text, right? I, I, I could do a topical series and just say, hey, let's do a Sunday on circumcision. I would never do that. But here it is in the text, and so we've got to deal with it. So let me give you the very clinical definition of circumcision straight from my personal doctor, WebMD. Because that's how often I go to the doctor. WebMD.com. Circumcision is a surgery to remove the foreskin at the very tip of a man's private parts. There, I said it. In church. Actually, that wasn't WebMD. That was, that was the cleaned up church version. Uh, but you get the point, right? That's what it is. It's a surgery. Um, and for the Jews, it's commanded in the Torah as part of the Abrahamic covenant recorded in Genesis 17, which we'll read in just a second. Today, circumcision is widely practiced in the West. The last statistic I read was, I think, 75% of American boys are circumcised at, at birth. And almost every Jew, even ones who aren't very observant, still live out this command in their lives because they believe it's a key part of the Torah. On the eighth day, they will circumcise their boys. If you don't know, especially here in America, it's often a party, a celebration. It's called a bris, and they will bring in a moil, who's a doctor or a rabbi, and he will come in, and he will publicly uh, uh, perform this this ritual, this surgery. Um, and every guy just crossed his legs, right? I know. Uh, so it's, qu- it's quite a big thing in, in, in Jewish culture. So let's put your finger in Romans 2, keep it there, or put something there, and let's go back to Genesis 17, and we'll go ahead and look at what the text says about the establishment of this important symbol. Genesis 17, verses 1 to 11. Genesis 17. It's at the beginning of the Bible, right? Very good. (laughs) All right, verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, which is always a a good reaction before the Lord, right? And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, or Avraham, For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Notice that, an everlasting covenant. That will be important as we get deeper into the the letter to the Romans. To be God to you and to your to your descendants after you, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. Here's the key two verses. Verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So I read all of that so that you understand that the, the, the circumcision part of this is, is the symbol, it's the sign that seals all of these amazing promises to Abraham, right? Uh, it's really, this is the Abrahamic covenant. This is, this is key to understanding all of biblical theology. It still is in effect today, and we can talk about that more later. But the obvious question about circumcision in my mind at least, is why. (laughs) Tell me you haven't thought about this. Why, of all things, this particular sign, why this body part? And I've heard all kinds of speculative answers. I've heard it represents the flesh of man, the seed of man. It represents intimacy with God. It points to Isaac, the son of promise, to physical blessing and fruitfulness, even arguments just purely based on health advantages. And by the way, pediatricians agree that there are more benefits to it than than drawbacks. It helps with with hygiene and to resist uh, infections. You can talk to Caroline or or Tammy afterwards if you want a nurse's opinion on that. But there are health advantages to it. Here's the thing, what you'll find in Genesis 17, God doesn't explain himself. Do you ever get frustrated by that? (laughs) I do. I read it and I'm like, Lord, could you give me some work? You know, detail here, some explanation. He doesn't explain himself. He doesn't give his people a reason why in Genesis 17. He says, this is what I prescribe. And frankly, God in his sovereignty could have chosen any external symbol. He could have said, I want every person to shave their head or every person to grow out their fingernails. I don't know. It could be almost anything, but this is what he chose. This is the sign that he chose. And I, as a theologian, have to be okay with just saying, all right, Lord, you're sovereign. And maybe we'll get an answer in heaven. Or you can speculate, but it just, it just doesn't give us an answer. But there's a couple of important implications that come out of circumcision, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Two things I want to mention in particular. First, you'll find in the Old Testament the term uncircumcised used as what we call a pejorative. Okay? Men like Samson and David speak of the Philistines, for example, as uncircumcised. When they're doing that, they're not talking about a medical condition. Okay? Understand, they're not saying, oh, well, medically speaking, those guys are uncircumcised. No, it's an ethnic slur. It's a worldly ethnic slur that they are, that they are giving uh, to any non-Jew, to any Gentile. They are simply known, lumped into one category, they are the uncircumcised. Okay? Secondly, circumcision shows up prominently in the New Testament as well, in the story of the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. I'll put a verse on the screen in just a second. This is where Luke describes a great debate that broke out in the church after it became clear that Gentiles were coming into the kingdom by way of faith in Jesus Christ. And Luke says that some believers who at one time belonged to the party of the Pharisees, these are believers now, they were Pharisees, they're believers, but they were still stuck in their legalism. And they came to this council and they stood up and they said, Look, These Gentiles, who they still didn't like, by the way, these Gentiles who are coming into the kingdom, they must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. And this debate breaks out, and wisely the apostles defeat that argument and and shoot that down. The Gentiles shouldn't have to to come under the yoke of this Mosaic covenant. And Peter's speech on the subject is particularly helpful to understand what was going on at this time. This is Acts uh, 15, beginning in verse 7. It says this, there it is. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, or brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter was the, gospel, was the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, right? And so he, 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 he talks about this prophecy being fulfilled in him. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by what? By faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's a very important statement about the burden of the law. The burden of the law to the Jews. Why would we put this on Gentiles who are coming to faith? We couldn't bear it. Why would we put it on them? Verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So understand, circumcision is, from Genesis 17 all the way into the New Testament, continues to be an important topic, and so we need to understand what's going on. Now with all that said, go back to Romans two, and let's work through some of these verses, because they can be confusing. Look at verse 25 in Romans chapter 2. For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. So Paul acknowledges that this symbol of the covenant is of value. It is an advantage for the Jew if that Jewish man or woman is a practicer of it, is a doer of the law. But, he says, if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become what? uncircumcision. Reverse that. <laughs> okay? It's become uncircumcision. So what is he saying? Shockingly to his audience, and this whole section in chapter 2, you can't, we, because we don't really understand the hostility between Jew and Gentile in the first century, it's hard for us to grasp how difficult this would have been. But shockingly, Paul was telling the Jews that if they break God's moral law, as they did, That circumcision, this thing that they were trusting in, is actually nullified. It's rendered useless. And the implication of that to the Jew is horrifying. What does it mean if they become uncircumcised? They're just like the dirty Gentiles. I mean, a first century Jew could barely bear to hear that. This would have been horrifying to them. But it fits with what Paul has already said up in verses 6 and 13. If you look up there, verse 6 says, God will render to each person not according to their ethnicity, not according to some fleshly symbol, but according to their, to their deeds. In verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who be justified. So Paul's being consistent here. He's saying this is exactly how you'll be judged. Not according to these advantages you've been given, not according to some fleshly symbol, but according to your deeds. Now, look at verse 26. So, if the uncircumcised man, that's a Gentile, right, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as a circumcision? That's the other side of that coin, right? That's the flip side of the truth in verse 25. If a circumcised Jew is a lawbreaker, his circumcision is regarded as uncircumcision. That's 25. And by that same standard, if an uncircumcised Gentile is a law keeper, his uncircumcision is regarded as circumcision. Guys, you have to understand this. Paul is literally turning the Jewish world upside down with this teaching. Absolutely. You can almost hear the Jews in his audience gasping and demanding a clarification. Paul, are you really saying what you're saying? Are you really saying this? That we might find ourselves regarded by God as pagans and the Gentiles can find themselves regarded by God as a part of our covenant, the Abrahamic covenant? Shocking. And Paul would have said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying here. God will render to each person, both Jew and Gentile, not according to symbols, but according to deeds. So keep the law. Shocking stuff. Now, lest there be any confusion, let me reiterate what we've been saying throughout our exposition of chapter 2, that we are not teaching salvation by works here. That's not Paul's point here. Again, Paul is walking through a logical progression of thought, and in chapter 3, he's really going to zing them with the truth. But when Paul talks about doing good here in the context of chapter 2, or keeping the requirements of the law, he's talking about a man or woman who has a persistent lifestyle of being set apart for the glory of God and always seeking to honor Him. Perfect? No. Nobody keeps the law perfectly. But he's talking about a man who ultimately trusts in the redemptive promise and mercy of God in order to be saved. That's what he meant up in verse 7 when he said that eternal life is rendered to the man who by perseverance in doing good seeks glory and honor and immortality. Okay, So what comes out of our heart shows up in our life, Right? and if the, it's like the tree that the good tree with the good roots produces what? good fruit so he's not teaching salvation by works here he's walking through a logical progression so don't be fooled by this what he's saying here in verse 26 is true by grace an uncircumcised pagan, that's, that's me by the way can become a part of the covenant and be saved most of us in this room are Gentiles right? can I get a hallelujah for this teaching? Right? This is good news for us. And in a veiled way, what Paul is hinting at here is is a concept he's going to develop much more fully in chapter 11 using an illustration from the world of horticulture. In chapter 11, Paul says that Israel is like an olive tree and it has a holy root to it. But because of unbelief, some of the branches on that tree have dried up and broken off. And that's a reference to Jewish unbelief. And the Gentiles, who he, call, he calls us a wild olive shoot. As a wild olive shoot, we can be grafted into that tree in the places where those branches were broken off, and we can now be party to this rich, holy root of this olive tree. It's a beautiful picture. We'll get to it much later. But the Gentile, in effect, is regarded by faith as having received the sign of circumcision, the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, by being grafted into this tree. It's an amazing truth, you guys. Absolutely amazing. We should be very thankful for it. By the way, it's not the only place that Paul talks about it. In Ephesians 2, look what he says here. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that means uncircumcised, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Now, that's an interesting pejorative right there, is it not? By the so-called circumcision. Those those arrogant Jews who are trusting in their fleshly symbol. Okay? You're called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So by the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, Jesus has brought you and I near into the household of God. And through him, now we've been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. That's amazing. We're no longer strangers to the covenant promises. We finally have hope for this life and for the life to come. And then Paul mentions it again in Galatians 3. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. Amen, right? Yeah, that should be a shout right there. In Christ, this is how we are now regarded. Amazing truth. Now look at verse 27. And he who is physically uncircumcised, that's a Gentile, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. I mean, the punches keep coming here. Paul is taking shot after shot at these people. Now, it was widely understood in the ancient world, in uh, across the board in every people group, that the righteous people will stand up one day and judge the unrighteous. But in the Jewish tradition, they always cast themselves in the role of which one, the judge, the righteous judge, and the Gentiles is the ones being judged. And so here Paul again is flipping the script, no doubt shocking his audience even more. Are you serious, Paul? You're saying that those people are going to judge us? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. On that day, the keeper of the law will judge the lawbreaker. The one who trusts in the promises of God and seeks to bring him glory will judge those who do not obey the truth and trust in things like circumcision. Yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen. By the way, you might hear in that an echo from the teaching of Jesus. Do you remember how Jesus said, and again, this would have been shocking in his day, that the men of Nineveh, the dreaded Assyrians, will rise up at the judgment and judge you, Jews, for your lack of repentance. Why? Because the Assyrians repented at the preaching of Jonah. But in Jesus' day, they were absolutely stiff-necked and stubborn and refused to repent. So there's precedent for this teaching from Jesus himself. Amazing stuff. So let's finish up by looking at the heart of the matter now in verses 28 and 29. Now Paul's going to redefine what it means to be a Jew. Or more generally, he's going to redefine, listen to this, redefine what it means to be a part of the redeemed people of God. Okay. Not just Jew, but the redeemed people of God. Verse 28, For he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So the language here is very intentional important. Four contrasts that Paul draws here to show the difference between false external righteousness and true internal righteousness, okay? I'll put put these words up on the screen. You see these amazing contrasts. You have outward versus what? Inward. Flesh versus heart. Letter versus spirit. And the praise of man versus the praise of God. The ones on the left, that list on the left, are the things that would be seen by the human eye, right? The things on the right are the things that are known by God alone. Which of those two lists will matter on the day of judgment? Yeah, the one on the right. And this is the fundamental problem of the Jews, isn't it? The true Jew, the true redeemed people of God will not be men and women who have the bloodline and the DNA of Abraham. They will be the ones who exhibit the type of faith that Abraham exhibited in Genesis 15. Now every Christian should know Genesis 15:6. Such an important verse. God delivers to Abraham these great promises about a son and about many descendants. And then this is what the text says. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him. God reckoned it to him as what? As righteousness. By trusting in the promises of God, Abraham was credited with righteousness. He was justified before God. Friends, listen to me this. This is salvation by faith alone in the Old Testament. He was justified by faith alone. He trusted in God. He believed the promises of God. Very important verse. So let me say it again. On the day of judgment, the true redeemed people of God will not be men and women who have a certain DNA or a certain bloodline from Abraham. They will be the ones who exhibit that type of faith. The type of justifying faith of Abraham in Genesis 15. So the mark of being a citizen in God's kingdom, listen, is circumcision, but not by the flesh. It's circumcision of the heart. That is the mark of a citizen. Circumcision not of the flesh, but of the heart. Now, what might our Jewish antagonist say to all of this teaching? Here's what I imagine him saying. But, Paul, how is I supposed to know all this? I mean, I read Genesis 17. It tells me to circumcise myself and my descendants after me to do this physical thing and I've done it so why would you blame me this guy hasn't read his Torah this guy has not read the word listen to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 10 now Israel what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all with all your soul what what does that what does that bring to mind Jesus is teaching on the greatest commandment, right? The summation of the law and the prophets. It's right there in Deuteronomy 10. He goes on. He says this. And to keep to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is This day. So, therefore, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. So the Jewish antagonist he didn't read his Torah. Moses said it really clearly: circumcise your heart. It appears that circumcision as an outward sign had a much more important meaning, didn't it? It was to point to an inward reality in the heart. And the Jews in Paul's day. Sadly, had missed this. I could go on. Deuteronomy 30. Listen to what Moses says. Now he's talking about future trouble for the Jews and God's faithfulness to restore his people. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. There's a, there's a, a prophecy here, right? That you're going to stumble and you will be banished at some point. Verse 2, And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. God is so faithful, right? He will discipline his children, but he will always bring them back. He goes on, If your outcast are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. God is a God of restoration, right? Here's the key. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. You can't tell me that a first century Jew didn't understand circumcision of the heart. It's Moses himself who instructed. First is a a command, circumcise your heart. Secondly is a promise. God says, I will restore you and I will circumcise your heart. Both of those things came straight from Moses himself. By the way, that's not even the end of it. Later in Jewish history, at the time of Judah's unfaithfulness, Jeremiah, this is the the captivity of Babylon is about to happen. Jeremiah says this, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, look at the wording here, and remove the foreskins of your heart. hmm, Or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. The Jews should have known this that circumcision was more than just an outward symbol, that God wanted circumcision of the heart. So Paul says to his Jewish audience, look, your circumcision is useless on the outside because your hearts aren't circumcised. You've even ignored Moses himself. And because your hearts aren't circumcised, that circumcision in your flesh, it's useless. It's like uncircumcision. It's as if you were never among the chosen people, by your failures and your disobedience, it's as if you never received the law. It's as if you never received the covenant promises. Why? Because you've rejected the heart of the matter. You've rejected the core of what the law was all about. I don't see love of God in you. I don't see love for your neighbor. I don't see obedience that reflects true faith. And so Paul would say, Brother, don't stand on that platform of assurance. You ought not to be secure in it. It's false. And that's what we need to do today with people in our lives who are standing on false things. We need to knock those pillars out, amen? All right, let me um, wrap up with a few final thoughts for us. You see how Paul is chopping down every pillar, right? Of false religion and self-deception. Paul, I don't need your gospel. I have this and I have this and I have this and I have this. I'm good. No, you're not. You're not good. Do we have the courage to say that today? No, you're not good. If you want to see God, you must you must hear my gospel. You must embrace my gospel. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That message hasn't changed from the first century to the 21st century. So I would say to us today, don't trust in religion. Don't trust in external symbols, don't trust in rituals and and ceremonies, things which cannot give you assurance. I mean, being in church on Sunday, it's a great thing. It ain't going to save you. I mean, I want to see you here every Sunday, trust me, because I love you, but it ain't going to save you sitting in a chair here today. Taking communion is a wonderful privilege, but if your heart isn't circumcised, it will profit you nothing on the day of judgment. Your baptism will not save you any more than circumcision of the flesh saved a Jew in the first century. Don't trust in it. And I could go on and on. There's so many things. If you talk to people who are struggling in their faith or don't know Jesus, so many things that they are trusting in, so many external things that they're trusting in, and they believe that they're assured of salvation. We gotta talk to them. But for us, the question really is this. How about your faith? Is it a present, active faith? Today, not something you did 20 years ago when you walked an aisle or raised a hand in church? Is it a present active faith? In spite of your imperfections and your falling short, we all do, do you have a persistent lifestyle of repentance and a seeking to be set apart for the glory of God, a striving to honor Him in all that you do? Are you a good tree with good roots producing good fruits of righteousness? And ultimately, are you trusting in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? and the mercies of God to save you on the day of judgment. If you're going to build a platform of assurance on anything, that's what Paul would say. You want to build a platform of assurance? Build it on that, on Jesus Christ. Let him be the cornerstone. Let him be the only pillar that holds up your platform. Amen? Pray with me, would you?